Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Brett Hogarth to the show. Brett has held the position of Director of Business Development for the Biomass Advisory Group for nine years. Over that time, he has led new product development and marketing efforts, managed client relations, and structured work plans for over 250 biomass feedstock supply chain consulting projects across North America. Brett has been integral in identifying and executing on opportunities to leverage EcoStrat's data and analytics to provide new and innovative solutions to meet the needs of stakeholders across the bioenergy industry. Brett, how are you doing today? I'm well. Thanks for having me. Brett, thank you for being on. Brett, I'd like to kick things off by asking my guest the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? That's a great question. So uh, <clears throat> I, uh, something that's interesting about me is I play guitar in a uh, four-piece rock band. Uh, this dates back to my university days when um, some friends of mine all lived in a house together. We uh, built a jam space in the basement using uh, a bit of wood, but a lot of fruit crates that we would source from a local uh, fruit market to diffuse the sound. And uh, we'd just go down there and, and play music. Um, after we graduated, uh, two friends and I found a rehearsal studio in the city and uh, recruited a drummer. And we've been playing more or less uh, ever since. So every Wednesday we head down to the jam space, as we call it, and uh, uh, play for three or four hours and head home. Uh, so it's, uh, we don't take it too seriously. It's, it's, it's more uh, for the fun of it. But um, there you go. We've, we've recorded a few times and have played uh, a few gigs around Toronto. So it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. So a couple of questions. What kind of guitar? I play a 1977 Les Paul Custom. So it's a vintage, very old uh, guitar I bought when I was in high school and uh, still my only guitar to this day. And what kind of music? It would be described probably as a fusion between rock and punk so it's uh up tempo pretty loud uh, again there's it's instrumental so there's no vocals um so it's uh loud and fast and uh, a lot of fun to play and lastly i didn't realize you were in toronto toronto is one of my favorite cities in the world oh thanks for saying that yeah it's uh, it's a wonderful place to live I absolutely love it. I've been up there many times. In fact, I've driven there from Dallas at least four or five times. Oh, wow. How, how long is that drive? It's 24 hours, nonstop, oh, three, eight-hour shift. Oh, wow. Good. Well, And it's well worth the drive. I'll bet. I'll bet the, uh, the scenery on the way is not too bad either. It's beautiful, although I must say that I was caught there once in the winter, and I vowed never to go back post-October. So between October and, let's say, April-ish, you guys can have it. I think that's right. We'll take it. And uh, you're absolutely right. There's no reason to visit uh, after October. 
unless you enjoy skating or cross-country skiing. Yep, totally agree. So, Brett, switching gears a little bit, can you share a little bit about your current company that you're working with? Sure. So, EcoStrat is a what I call a biomass supply chain solutions company. So, biomass is a, an umbrella term we use to talk about organic byproducts, so wood waste, uh, agricultural waste, food waste, and human waste. Um, so we're comprised of two groups. Um, our, our biomass supply group acquires waste biomass from large point source generators and upcycles that waste to value-added markets. So a lot of this waste would typically be sent to landfill. So we're, we're circumventing um, that sort of linear uh, disposal uh, supply chain and um, moving it into markets that would use it for power, uh, for heat, uh, to produce another product or to sort of manage other products. Um, so we've been in this space for over 20 years. Uh, we move about a half a million tons of the types of waste that I mentioned before um, on an annual basis. And um, so, so really to, to boil that down, we, you know, we are, our company really builds biomass supply chains. Um, the second group, and this is the group that I, I, uh, manage is our advisory group. So we provide in our advisory group, we provide uh, bespoke information services um, to developers, to lenders and investors in the space that need to answer questions or, or develop data around um, where they should site facilities, uh, how much waste is generated in a certain region, what's the addressable market, how much could they capture um, of that, of that waste. Um, what, what, what does the pricing look like? How much would they be paid or how much would they have to pay to source these materials? How is it being managed currently? Um, et cetera, et cetera. So we're brought in by project developers, uh, to sort of help them either identify sites that would be good for development or to help them actually source the material uh, to review their contracts. Um, we're brought in at a, at a whole bunch of different times in, in, in a development cycle. And then uh, the investors and lenders would bring us in at a, at a project finance stage to do diligence around, um, uh, around a project's feedstock supply. So that's who we are. Very interesting. If you could explain, what is a point source originator? A point source generator is anyone that's producing uh, large quantities of a biomass byproduct. So in the, the waste wood business, uh, of which we move uh, significant quantities, um, these would be sawmills, they would be... Um, uh, transfer stations that are receiving uh, waste wood and separating it from the rest of the uh, concrete or drywall or, or other materials that they're bringing in. <clears throat> These could be uh, loggers in the forest uh, that are 
um, you know, delimbing trees as, as they're, as they're harvesting, um, and may grind up that wood, uh, into a, into a, a, a truck that would, that would, uh, that we would send there to, to pick up that residue and we would move it to a, um, a market that would use it on the, on the, on the food waste side, it tends to be, um, food processors. So, uh, you know, the Pepsis and Coca-Colas and, and, uh, large meat processors and, and, uh, Campbell's and just the major, uh, you know, food companies that, that, uh, that we all know and love. Um, so we would, uh, send a truck to pick up their, um, a byproduct from their manufacturing process, usually a, a wastewater sludge type of material. And then we would move that to, uh, to anaerobic digestion markets and, and a few others. So they're, they're broadly, they're large sources of, of a byproduct that, uh, you know, historically the, the, the waste, uh, that by, byproduct would be sent to a landfill rather than, um, a, a, uh, a beneficial market. So it almost sounds like you've created a, almost like a broker position or a marketplace. Would that be correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, we're we're acquiring the material. We're we're managing the logistics. Um, so we're a broker, but we're actually taking title of the material. So we fancy ourselves uh, as traders uh, because we're we're doing that sort of end to end management uh, piece as well. And so, is storage part of taking title for yourselves? Uh, storage would. Um, would require an additional cost that uh, many markets could not bear. So often we would push the inventory uh, requirement back onto our suppliers. Um, there have been cases where we would have to process or reprocess a, a material. So we have in the past set up yards or, or processing equipment to be able to um, process the material to meet a spec that's required. But every time you're touching it, you know, these are, these are physical commodities. Every time you're handling, uh, unloading, loading, um, processing, you're adding significant cost to the ultimate buyer. So when, where possible, you would avoid, um, any kind of sort of inventory that, that, uh, um, would be between the actual supplier and the end market. Of course. And you mentioned commodities. So are there significant price fluctuations in the different biomass sources? So that's going to depend on the type of biomass. Um, <clears throat> we're based in Toronto. We, we uh, aggregate and supply a lot of uh, construction and demolition wood waste, which is uh, waste as the name describes, comes from uh, new 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 home construction or new construction and, and demolition of old homes. So all of that waste is aggregated. Um, it's processed and, and sorted um, and ground into a, a product. And then we, we take the product and move it to um, markets that, that, that we supply. And, you know, that, that market in Ontario, uh, for example, has fluctuated quite dramatically. Uh, based on changes on the demand side. So it's, you know, it, it, it really depends. Um, it's, it's uh, 
you know, really a, a, a game of, of managing the delivery, delivery cost, uh, or, or the, the, the tip cost. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if there's anything that changes on the demand side, then, then yeah, price can, can swing quite, quite dramatically. Very interesting. So Brett, switching gears a little bit, you know, the focus of this show is the why behind what you're doing. And so what I mean by that is that there's an opportunity cost. You've chosen this line of work for a particular reason. Why did you decide to go into this work and then stay with it? Well, it's, it's an interesting market uh, for a whole bunch of different reasons. I, I took this job straight out of university, so it's my one and only. Um, so I... You know, it was uh, it was a decision that was that was made because um, it's it's uh, it's in the renewable space, uh, so it's environmentally friendly. Um, you know, I, I uh, met the owner and and he was he was great, so it, it seemed like a, a great shop to join. Um, but the you know the evolution of the markets that we've been dealing with over the last ten years that I've been with the company has been really dramatic. So it's, it's constantly evolving. Um, we're constantly having to adapt. Uh, so it's exciting, uh, as well as challenging just to keep, um, at the front edge of <clears throat> sort of the evolutions that are happening in the market and figuring out how to monetize it. Um, at the end of the day, we're taking waste materials and producing value added products. So it's, you know, often we're, we're finding ourselves at the nexus between the waste industry and power markets, gas markets, I mean, commodity markets. Um, but it's broadly sort of this connection between the waste industry and, and energy, which are not necessarily, uh, they don't necessarily fit well together. So there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, there's a lot of, uh, uncertainty and and you know our role is really to help connect the dots in this evolving landscape so it's it's uh can be quite challenging but also rewarding at the same time now you mentioned environmental earlier what about the environmental aspect drew you to it well so originally when i joined the company we were doing a lot of woody biomass to power projects and and you know the, the carbon accounting there can be distilled quite simply to that a tree over the course of its life will absorb CO2 and release oxygen. It sequesters that carbon. And so when you uh, cut a tree to use it for, for lumber uh, or, or pulp and paper and you burn the residues, you're, you're simply releasing the same carbon that the tree sequestered originally back into the atmosphere. So it's leaving aside that there would be, you know, trucking uh, of the material from the, the source to the to to the biomass plant, uh, which has some some carbon uh, emissions there. It's it's broadly carbon neutral, uh, and it's you know it's it's uh, it's baseload power, which for the purposes of a of a stable grid, there, there's benefits there. So it's uh, you know a, a good source of of renewable energy. In addition to that you're avoiding any any methane methane emissions related to the wood sort of decomposing on its own so from the start it it always seemed uh 
you know, quite intuitive that the better we get at managing these types of resources, the greater cost savings, um, the greater carbon emission savings, um, you know, we can provide to society. So, you know, from the start, it, it was, it was always attractive. Um, and, you know, recently we've, we've done quite a bit more work in the food waste space and, and the numbers on that side are, are, uh, are equally, um, significant. So um, I just looked at a study the other day where they were looking at food waste and emissions related to food waste in Canada. And I'm looking at a data set right now. So there are roughly five and a half million tons of food waste, uh, in Canada each year. The food waste that goes to a landfill, um, for every ton that's disposed in a landfill, there's 1.25 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent released because a lot of that's methane. Methane, of course, has a, a much higher greenhouse gas um, uh, effect, sort of global warming effect than, than carbon dioxide because it's a bigger molecule. It traps more heat um, as opposed to where we're, the projects that we're supporting are, are generally anaerobic digestion, food waste going to those markets releases 0.05 tons of CO2 equivalent per ton disposed. So very significant savings. And, and going back to your original question, um, you know, these are all compelling uh, from an environmental standpoint. And I think that's, that's you know, one of the, the, the things that, that keeps us coming in and, and uh, working as hard as we do every day. So have you always been environmentally conscious? Uh, I think so. I think so. Um, you know, I, th I think, uh, I think, you know, as a millennial and I hate to, to make a generational uh, sort of broad, broad statement, but I, I think that, you know, we grew up in public school learning about, um, environmental issues. I remember I can think back to like grade three when we started hearing about, uh, species extinctions and global warming. And, and so I, I think we really grew up with these issues. Uh, so it's, so, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's something that th these are issues that aren't going away and are really going to define our generation. So, um, so yeah, I, I think it's I think it's extremely important to to get it right. So you know that's really interesting. I've spoken to many millennials, and um, I've never heard anyone tell me or explain to me that they were taught about the significance of the environment at such a early age. I'm an immigrant to the country. I've been here, let's just say, just a little over 25 years. So I didn't go to school here, but I've never heard anyone tell me that, which makes so much more sense now, especially with these recent movements that, you know, you've been hearing this for a long time. And so for it to be part of your life is almost natural. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty wild. And, you know, there, there's been, there's been news coming out recently that I've been really interested, interested in that, um, I was reading about yesterday. Um, but I'd heard of before where, 
you know, countries all over the world are using satellites to um, basically do imaging, infrared imaging of uh, pollution in the world. And it's gotten to a resolution only recently where we can actually look at the emissions from individual sort of point sources. So a landfill, a coal power plant, uh, et cetera. So, you know, I think it's, it's benefiting society that, you know, in addition to sort of these broader narratives around global warming, that we're, we're reaching a technological point where we can, with more rigor and detail, um, really get a much better view on what the sources are. It, it's just it's just adding to the, the 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 data set, right? That we're all sort of working from, and as as a as a global society trying to develop solutions for. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's you know, I, th- I think. When we were young, it was that, uh, you know, the ice caps are melting and, and the polar bears are, you know, going to lose their habitat. And, uh, you know, now the more data that, that, that we're acquiring, um, you know, even fugitive methane emissions from some of the uh, oil and gas storage and, and drilling sites are, are shocking even people that have been in the industry for a long time. So it's, it's the more data that we get, the clearer picture we, we have and, and the better the, the strategies to be able to deal with it. Absolutely. So you mentioned sources. So I have a couple mm-hmm. of questions around sources. One is, you know, from your opinion, if you could wave a magic wand and say, you know, I just can't wait till I don't see this kind of waste anymore, what would that be? And the second is, you know, you mentioned anaerobic digestion, but do you have any "quote unquote" favorite technologies or technologies on the horizon that you think over the next ten years you might see a huge increase in? So, you know, I, th- I think the easy answer is is all waste uh, would be best avoided. Um, you know, we're in the the food waste industry. I think just the statistics on the amount of food waste that we all generate, uh, you know, on on a daily or, or weekly or annual basis. Uh, it's pretty staggering, and then thinking about the cost, the 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 cost related to that, the amount of carbon required to come and, and pick up the food waste and and dispose of it. Um, it's it's all it all <clears throat> requires us, I think, to think about our role in in this waste problem. Uh, food waste is, is certainly a big deal. I think there's been a lot of news recently about plastics in the ocean and, and, you know, the West, uh, exporting a lot of plastics to China, uh, who has since curtailed that, that importation. So now we're left to figure out what we're going to do with, uh, you know, millions of tons of, of plastic. Um, so I, I think it's all. A, a big problem that uh, you know we're going to have to deal with and, and find local uh, and domestic solutions for uh, the one t- one technology that you know I'm I'm, I'm particularly interested in is uh, sort of getting off of of uh, natural gas as a, as a heat source and and moving more towards 
uh, ground or air source heat pumps um, or large scale uh, biomass thermal plants. So you see this a lot in Europe where they have central heating. Um, uh, they'll have a centralized plant. They will have uh, pipes that, that, that move hot water from the plant to businesses or, or homes. Um, and to the extent that we can sort of get rid of, you know, a natural gas heating system in, in every home uh, and move towards, you know, a, a renewable source of heat, I think that that would be uh, hugely impactful. Now, how close to the residential areas are some of these plants in Europe? I, I actually don't know. I mean, I would imagine pretty close because the the you know the cost of laying the 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 laying the uh, the hot water pipes is probably going to be a a significant cost. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's I think they you know it, they would have. Uh, uh, particulate uh, control, so you know, eliminating any any soot or or particulates that the plant would would release. Um, maybe even you know, probably other uh, emissions controls, and and uh, they would they would build um, big smokestacks to to let the let the gases out uh, high enough that it doesn't bother anyone. Um, but yeah, I actually I, I don't know the answer to that question, unfortunately. And, and that's why I was asking, because I know there's this um, NIMBY movement, mm-hmm. you know, not in my backyard. And I feel like every once in a while, so I had a conversation about nuclear yesterday with another gentleman here that I work with. And, you know, some people think nuclear is a good idea. Some people don't. But when it comes down to brass tacks, people would like it, but not mm-hmm. in their backyard and, you know, and things like we still have, you know, residual memory from things like, let's call it Fukushima, Chernobyl, sure. you know, still a significant population that remembers, you know, the World War II. And so I, I was just curious as far as, I know sometimes people like the idea of alternatives, but as long as the alternative is somewhere else and not in their backyards. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, I think that's, that's, that's true. Um, <clears throat> you know, to the extent that we could potentially leverage some of the existing infrastructure and, uh, you know, revitalizing maybe some of the old coal power plants in, in the U S and Canada that have been shuttered, uh, refueling it with a domestic fuel source, like, uh, like woody biomass and, and, um, you know, providing low cost, uh, heat. Uh, I think there's, I think there's definitely an opportunity to do something like that where, you know, the plant's already there. It's, it's, uh, it's it's a uh, sort of a, a legacy a legacy plant, and so it, it might avoid some of those some of those new build issues. Absolutely, and you know, since you mentioned um, food waste, I released an episode this morning with a gentleman named Aiden, who has a technology called Hazel Technologies, and essentially, um, he's his technology prevents food from aging so it gives fresh produce a right. longer shelf life all the way from mm-hmm. grower to the consumer you might find that interesting yeah i mean you know look the the the, the ultimate carbon uh, abatement strategy is to not waste at all and you know there's i don't know if this is big in the u.s uh but in here in canada we're 
you know, the, the grocery stores are starting to sell what they call ugly, ugly fruits and vegetables. So, you know, food items that didn't necessarily pass the, the eye test, um, they're now starting to market these, these, these foods, which are perfectly fine. They just, uh, they may have some type of, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't have the, the perfect shape. So they're selling these foods at a discount rate. Um, you know, I was reading the other day that, that Canada and some of the, some European countries, again, I don't know if this exists in the States, but, but we, any food that's donated to a food, uh, food bank, there is sort of a liability coverage there so that if, if, you know, it, it eliminates some of the liability concerns related to donating expired food, uh, to people that need it. So, I mean, there, there's a whole bunch of different strategies to eliminate the actual production of waste food. And, and, uh, you know, if, 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 if there's a mechanism to keep foods, uh, keep, you know, fruits and vegetables fresh longer. I think, I think that's, that's, you know, a tool in the toolbox. Absolutely. So Brett, I like to end the show with a question about if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? So I, I've thought a lot about this and, you know, I, th- I think that the main uh, words of wisdom would be that all the growth that we've seen in, in these markets, whether it's anaerobic digestion, um, biomass power, uh, uh, you know, wood pellets that are, that are being manufactured in the U S and shipped to Europe. They're all, they're all policy driven markets. These are, um, you know, whether it's waste bans or, uh, carbon reduction, the, 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 the need for strong policy is clearly there. Um, there. There are regions where policy is so strong that industry is going to really struggle to develop the infrastructure required to be able to manage the volumes of, of materials that we're talking about. I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, specifically California, which has a waistband. Uh, Ontario, where, where we are, has a, a similar waistband. And there's, there's big concerns around the ability for uh, to construct the infrastructure required to handle this, this type of waste. But I mean, that's a good problem to have. Um, so broadly, I, th- I think, you know, that these are policy driven markets, uh, it requires the policy. And, and so it requires uh, politicians and, and, and the public to really get behind um, these courses of action. So ultimately it's, it's, it's a political issue. And to the extent that we can all sort of mobilize and, 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 you know, get ensure that, that these policies, you know, continue to be written and advanced, um, and not, uh, not eliminated, uh, it's, it has a massive potential to, uh, to reduce greenhouse gases and, and, uh, you know, create the circular economy that I think we're all hoping will will happen uh, in our lifetime. So, I guess my advice is, uh, you know, let's let's be political and and Raj, you're you're doing your part. You're creating, you've created a podcast that shares information, and and uh, people are 
you know, able to access information uh, that, that, uh, that, you know, propels the, 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 the political, um, political drive. So uh, thank you for what you're doing and, and for having me, but uh, that's, that's my advice. Thank you, Breton. If I were to tease out what you said, I would say get involved and people can make a difference. So I really appreciate your time today, Brett, too. And I look forward to catching up with you again in the future.